if you would, out of love and reverence for God's Word, please stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We've been working these past couple months through the book of Ephesians, and we finally made it to chapter 2. And uh, we've in chapter 1, that great and glorious chapter, we heard about all the amazing, uh, infinite blessings that we have been given in Christ Jesus. And if you remember uh, when we talked last week, we talked about the power that God has worked in Christ Jesus, and that Paul was praying that we would know that power, and that that power is at work in the midst of the church. And the chapter divisions that we have in our Bibles were actually a, a later edition. Obviously, Paul didn't write uh, and put chapter divisions and verse divisions, and sometimes those are a bit unfortunate, uh, because this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and uh, you'll see that th- this uh, chapter division, while it makes sense to put it there, it's a... Uh, it, it, it clearly connects with what Paul's been saying because it begins with the word and. Uh, and it's, a, it's an odd way to start a sentence, and so he's c- clearly connecting with what he's been talking about, the power at work. And so what we'll see is that Paul is talking about the, the power that was at work in Christ, and that power was at work in the church. So here now, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, for God is indeed speaking to us through his word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of obedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, our great God, you are rich in mercy, and you have abundant love for your people, and we thank you that you reveal these things to us through your word. We pray that even as we come to this passage where we hear about things such as sin and wrath, which are hard for us to hear, we pray that even then you would lift our hearts to praise you, knowing that we have been saved from your wrath to live as your children, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So over the past few months when I've had time and energy uh, to do so, I've had the pleasure of reading some of Sherlock Holmes' uh, adventures. And there's something that's uh, pretty enjoyable about reading mysteries, and particularly Sherlock Holmes' uh, mysteries, not simply because Sherlock Holmes has this brilliant mind and this uh, amazing uh, powers of observation to see things that uh, other people do not see and to observe things. There's always um, there's this, this tension as he's trying to work out the mystery. There's always some missing piece uh, that, that seems to be uh, just outside his grasp. And once he, once he finds that piece, once he sees what he's looking for, once he deduces that, it's an unlock for him to know immediately what is... Um, what, what's the, 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 the purpose? Uh, what's been going on with the, the, the case? Uh, who, who is the culprit behind the crime? And uh, when 
I think as we live our lives in the, the context of culture, in the context of our families, uh, just in, or in the context of reading scripture, I think there's, there's often um, a bit of a mystery for us as we try to discern what, how, to, how to interpret everything that's been going on. And I think there's one key unlock and one key um, bit of information that always seems to be a bit beyond our grasp that once we grasp it, it helps illuminate everything about our experience. It illuminates um, what we see in culture, illuminates what's going on in our families, why we see so many problems. Uh, it even illuminates uh, such certain things such as uh, why would God send his son to die for a people? And that, that key unlock is the fact of sin. The fact of sin as uh, part of who we are as people. Um, and when we come to this passage, this wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I think this passage is one of those uh, wonderful passages where we see the gospel more clearly than perhaps any other passage in all of Scripture. Because in order to understand the, the richness of the gospel, we have to understand the depth of our need for it. Sometimes the brightness of God's glory is brighter and clearer when we see it in contrast to the depth of our sin and the blackness of our condition apart from him. And that's exactly what Paul has for us here. And if we were to summarize basically what Paul wants to to drive home to us, it would simply be this, that God has raised us from the dead in Christ Jesus. God has raised us from the dead in Christ Jesus. And as we look at the passage, we can probably break it down very easily into three key parts. You were, but God, so that. You were, but God, and so that. And so he starts with um, this very pointed statement. He said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, we know that we've got an English translation of a Greek Bible, and so sometimes we might wonder, well, did Paul really say that we were dead? I mean, is, is dead right? No, that is exactly what Paul said. This is not a mistranslation at all. But kids, this isn't an interesting dead. This isn't a dead dead like we might think of dead. Uh, this is a walking dead. This is a de- you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This notion of walking in something is a Jewish terminology, like talking about the way that we live. You know, if you remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And here he's talking about we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is a death, a deadness, a futility. Now, when we think about people, and there are different views on our natural estate, and there's probably three basic views of people. One is that people are generally healthy. Um, We're generally good people. Uh, We just need to be possibly pointed in the right direction. Um, if, If there's anything that's just wrong with us, that it may be that we're not as good as we could possibly be. And over the course of our life, maybe we'll get better, we'll get nicer, we'll get smarter, we'll understand things better. So that's one, is that, that we're 
generally healthy. The second view is that people are maybe not healthy, but they're sick, that um, they're not completely helpless, they're not completely devoid of any ability, they just need some amount of medicine to make them better. They, they, they're, they're not dead yet. They've got still some life in them that uh, someone can come by and breathe life into them or, or help them out, to just point them in the right direction. They can stand up on their own two feet uh, and recover from this sickness that is ailing them so that they can do the right thing. But the biblical view is a third one, and that's that we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. That dead connotes an inability of being able to do anything right. Uh, It's a a deadness that can't help itself. A dead man can't make himself alive. A dead man can't cure himself. A dead man is dead and apart from any hope. Um, And this is what Paul says that we were. We were dead. And he says... Notice he says, um, he was de- we were dead in the trespasses and sins. So students, if you were to trespass onto someone's yard, what that would mean is that you are going across a line. You're going somewhere that you ought not to go. You're doing something that you ought not to do. You're committing uh, a, a crime by going into an area that you don't belong. Whereas a sin is talking about missing the mark. So Maybe you're, you're told to do something, and what you've done misses the mark. It's not quite what was intended. And so when Paul says we are dead in the trespasses and sins, what he's talking about is you were dead in the, the, the way that you sinned by doing things you ought not to do, but you're also dead in the doing thing, or not doing things that you were supposed to do by missing the mark. It's a holistic sins of omission and sins of commission, we would say. And that is the picture that he says, that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So that's part of who we were, he says. But the, the next part is that he says that we were enslaved. So as, as if dead wasn't good enough, there was, even in the midst of this walking, there was this picture of slavery. And there were three key ways that he says that we were enslaved. The first is um, by following what it says, you were in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So what he's saying is that we're following the pattern of this world, that, that there is the, the course that God has set forth, and then there is the course that the world does, which is in contrast to that, and that all of us were at one time following the course of this world, following the pattern which the, the world set forth, rather than what God said. So it's following the course of the world. But the second is um, the passions of the flesh. He says, um, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, um, and which, is, which is interesting because he's saying um, we've got passions in our, our flesh. And typically when we think about flesh, we think about skin and bones. Um, and we think about, uh, or we might equate flesh with a sin nature, which is clearly in view. But a lot of times talk about sins that we do in the body, um, sins that we might commit uh, with, with the flesh. But notice what he says. He says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So these are desires that are mental. These are desires that are 
worked out in the course of our lives. And these are passions. These are, these are desires that turn into passions, and we're living out those passions. So it's a self-centered uh, living. As, a, as in the first thing, he's saying we're following the course of the world. Now we're following the course of what we want, uh, what, what we think is right, the, the desires of our own mind. So then the third way he says that we were enslaved was he says that we were following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's a kind of a strange phrase for us, the prince of the power of the air. What's Paul getting at? Well, they, the Ephesian people would have understood this notion of the air as similar to what we would, the, the space between the ground and the clouds. That would be the air, but they thought of it a little bit more, where they would see that as the realm where spirits would dwell, perhaps primarily evil spirits, and that these evil spirits are somehow superintending over the course of the, the world and the things that are going on in the world, and uh, these spirits are ruled themselves. They're ruled by the prince of the power of the air. And if you remember, there was a time where Jesus said something about the the devil being the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. I think that's what Paul has in mind is that even there's a spiritual realm at play where there's these evil forces that are working to superintend in the affairs of the world. That doesn't mean that he's saying that people, unbelievers, are possessed by these demons, but they're certainly influencing the course of events, and they're driving a, a pattern of life that is against what God and his, uh, his forces are, are advocating. And so there's a, a spirit of the prince of the power of the air, and then he, he also calls it the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That there's a spirit that is dwelling just like we would say that believers have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, he says that there is a, a spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, that there's an aspect of rebellion and disobedience that is driven by this spirit. So enslaved by the, the course of this world and not wanting to break out of that for fear of retribution, for fear of nonconformity, um, a, an enslavery by an own passions and in slavery by these, these spiritual forces. And so we would say the world, the flesh, and the devil, which are the three uh, things that we see in Scripture which are at war at, against our souls. And yet the pattern, or the picture that Paul has given us here is that there was no war for the way that we were. There is no war for the unbeliever. The, 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 the unbeliever is trapped and enslaved in that and yet they're willing participants. This, this, they're going along with it because it's their passions, their desires. The, the, that spirit is dwelling within them. There's a hopelessness in their uh, in sla- in, in captivity. Okay, So that's the second thing that Paul says, that we were. We were dead, we were enslaved, but perhaps the worst thing is right there in verse 3. He says, we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. Now, that's interesting language because he had just said that we were sons of disobedience. Now he says that we're children of wrath. And wrath is certainly not something that we 
like to talk about in our culture or even in the church today, but it is an important aspect for us to talk about because God reveals it in his word, and without understanding God's wrath, we don't understand God's grace. And part of our issue is that we have a view of wrath that reflects our own wrath when we experience wrath, an outer control fury, a you have done this for the last time and I'm going to make you feel the penalty for afflicting me and now I'm going to give it to you. But that's not, that's not a biblical view of God's wrath. God's wrath is very controlled and measured and judicial in nature. God is wrathful because he is holy, because he is just, because he is the creator, he is the king, and his creation and his subjects rebel against him, and that he is holy, and he cannot bear the sight of sin, and so he desires to bring an end to this offense against his holiness. And maybe a, a, this might surprise you, but a picture of God's wrath is in view in Scripture. One of the more, most horrific stories that we have in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 13, there's a, a story about some of David's children that takes place. And I think this might be a good picture of God's wrath at play. Um, David had a son named Amnon, and he had a daughter by another wife named Tamar. And uh, Amnon saw his half-sister Tamar, and he was captivated by her beauty. And he was consumed with passions for his sister. And so he manipulated his father, David, to send Tamar to him, and he uh, took the opportunity when they were alone to violate her. And as soon as he did, he Scripture says that he hated, Amnon hated Tamar more after he violated her than he loved her beforehand. And he cast her out of his presence, and she became um, alone. She lived out the rest of her days alone. Now, Tamar had a brother named Absalom, who was also a half-brother for Amnon. And Absalom heard about this. And, of course, Absalom was filled with rage. And yet he did nothing. He did nothing. He knew that David, his father, had heard about it. And, um, and Scripture says that uh, Am Absalom neither said anything good or bad to Amnon because he hated him for what he had done to his sister. And so he waited. He waited for two years and did nothing. And at the end of that two years, at just the right time, he concocted a scenario where he had Amnon brought and he had his servants put Amnon to, dead, to death. And he en enacted that just, justice and that vengeance upon this offense. And I think that's a, a picture of God's coming wrath for his people. God has been patiently enduring these offenses against his holiness. He has seen the offenses against his people. And yet he's patiently waiting. Read through Revelation and you see this picture of God's coming wrath upon all injustice. You see this, this picture of God's righteous wrath, his, his just wrath being poured out upon the kings, the rulers, 
the people of the world. In Revelation chapter 6, there's a, there's a story where it says that all the, the kings and the rulers and the people hide themselves in the caves. And they say to the mountains, fall on us that we may not see the face of the wrath of God as he comes. And, and near the end of the book of Revelation, it speaks of the angel of the Lord going into the earth and reaping the world like grapes, taking the grapes of the wickedness of the people, those who have not bowed the knee to Christ, and putting them in this great wine press of God's fury where Christ himself goes and stomps them out as the blood of the people stain his robe. That is the just outpouring of God's wrath against all unrighteousness and all unholiness, which God promises because he is holy and he is just. And he says, and that's what we were. That you were by nature children of wrath. You, we, we, one of the passages that we love is from Romans chapter 8, and it says, if God could be for us, who could be against us? But friends, don't you see that just the opposite is a terrifying truth? If God is against us, who could be for us? If God's wrath is pointed in our direction, who could be for us? And the only answer is only God could. Only God could rescue us from himself. And that is exactly what he did. Because the great promise is right there in verse 1. And you were, brothers and sisters, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were enslaved. You were objects of wrath. But now, what does it say? What's changed? But God. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Don't you see the beauty of the gospel? You were dead. You were hopeless. You, not more, worse than that, you wanted to be there. You were enslaved to your own passions. And you were a just recipient of his wrath. But God... But God, who is rich in mercy. Notice mercy. Mercy is a term which means you deserve punishment. You deserve something because of your wickedness. But God, who is rich in mercy, rather than giving you what you deserve, he is rich in mercy. He desires to show himself to be merciful to his people. And so he is rich in mercy, and he loved you with a immense Love, it says, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So notice, what, what did you bring to the table? What did I bring to the table in, in this salvation that I have? I brought nothing. Worse than that, I brought offense. I brought his wrath. I brought his, his judgment. But God, but God being rich in mercy, that great um, 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says that these two words, but God, in those two words summarize the whole of the Christian gospel. If we could just grasp that gospel, if you were ever going to share the gospel with somebody else and say, well, let me explain the gospel to you. The gospel is this, but God. You were this, but God gave you this. Consider these things that we, we learn in, in Scripture. Are you ignorant 
of the truths of God's word, ignorant of his promises, do you not understand those things? It says, but God has revealed these things to us by his spirit. Are you tempted in the midst of your life to sin against God? But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. behind what you can stand. Um, Are you foolish in in and feeling weak, like you don't bring anything of value to the table, but God chose the foulish things and the things that are not to shame the wise. Or are you a victim of other people's sins? Remember what Joseph said, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And here we say, you were dead, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive with Christ. Do you see how this is a completion of that prayer that Paul has had in chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, Paul was praying that we would know the hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance and what is that power? So this is the power that is at work in the church, that God has raised Christ from the dead, but God also raised you. You were dead, and now you've been made alive, alive in Christ Jesus. And he's writing, who's he writing to? He's writing to the Ephesian people, these people who, he said, when I heard of your uh, faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, these are people who have faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. These are the people whom he is saying God has raised to new life. And it's important for us to realize that how, how radical this is because we tend to view Christianity as meaning we live this life of moral niceness. Like uh, the, the, sum and total, as a, the sum and total of the Christian life is we, we just need to be nice to each other and we need to be nice to people that are unbelievers and, and that's sufficient. But this is much, a much more radical message, isn't it? The, the message is not about our behavior, but it, the message is about what God has done. The message is that God has taken dead people and made them alive in Christ. That he has taken people who were slaves and he has set them free for his uh, glory. And he has taken people that he were his enemies and he has loved them with a passionate love to make him his sons and daughters. It's, It's not about our nice behavior, though that is maybe something that is a implication of how we ought to live but it's about God's power and his majesty and his love in you and me. And notice um, what Paul says. He says, it's not just that he raised us. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you remember from last week, we talked about how Paul said that God had raised Jesus from the dead and he seated him in the heavenly places. And that was a sign of his victory and his, uh, his exaltation over all creation. Notice that Paul says that God has done the same thing for you and for me. That he's not just raised us from the dead. Though that would have been marvelous. He is raised us with Christ and seated us with him 
in the heavenly realms. He has taken us from being merely earthly beings, and he has made us citizens of this realm and the spiritual realm. And Paul actually, I think in his, perhaps in his excitement, he creates three words. Uh, you can't see it in the Greek, but uh, they're all, there's a, a Greek word, soon, which means with. And he makes these verbs that would only make sense in this context. He says that he uh, made us alive together with. That's one word. And then he raised us with. And he seated us with. I don't know another context where those words would even make sense. But Paul here creates those words to say, that is what he's done. It's, it's much beyond Christ representing us in the heavenly places. He says that he has put us there. He has seated us with him there in the heavenly realms. What that means is that we have not just life, but we have victory even now over all things in Christ Jesus. Now it's with Christ Jesus, so it can't be that we think of it that God has placed us in the heavenly realms or seated us there apart from Christ. It is in Christ Jesus, but it is a, it's a glorious reality. And, you know, that's part of what we enjoy when we gather for worship, is that we talk and we pray that God would be with us by his Spirit. We speak of God condescending to be with us by his Spirit in worship, and that, that is true. But there's another element that we have been raised with Christ and are seated with him in the heavenly realms. And so when we gather for worship, we are in God's presence. Not because God has, not only because God has come here, but because we have been raised to him. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 says, is that we've come to a heavenly Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, to angels in festal gathering. We are worshiping him. That's how why we when we come to the Lord's table, we say that we eat and drink the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, where is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's not here. He is risen. He is at God's right hand. How are we eating and drinking his body and blood? It's because we are with him in the spiritual realms. And we are nourished in the spiritual realms in Christ Jesus. It's a mystery that is revealed to us by the Apostle Paul, this wonderful gift. And all this, Paul summarizes by this little thing that we'll expand on more next week, where he just simply says, by grace you have been saved, or by grace you are saved. What are you saved from, kids? You're, we would say we're saved from our sins, but yes, but what are we saved from? We're saved from that wrath, that wrath that we deserve. And how do we know that we're saved from that wrath? We're saved from that wrath because God has raised us from the dead. He has given us faith to cling hold of his son so that we have been raised with him and seated victoriously in his presence. He has made us holy so that we can dwell with him now and forever and ever. That's immense love. That's great love. That is rich mercy. And we have to understand that this is this love and this mercy is not because Christ came and lived and died. Christ came and lived and died for us because of that great mercy. The Lord Jesus made very clear that the reason he came was to show the world that he loved the Father. He came because of the love of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish. God loved us, and so he sent his Son to rescue us. So that means that when we were objects of his wrath, 
when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were slaves, he sent his son to die for us, his one and only son. That's amazing love. That's immense love. So why would he do this? He told us who we were. He told us, but God, but what's the so that? It's right there in verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He did it so that he would be glorified, so that he would show the immeasurable riches. That word immeasurable, the root of that word is the word we get our, our term hyperbole. Hyperbole is an exaggeration where we exaggerate. It's almost like his exaggerated riches of his kindness for us in Christ Jesus. And kindness, for us, kindness is kind of a kind of a weak term. Like we, we don't use the term kind very much. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Kindness, this kindness is talking about a sovereign, a, a king who is extending his his grace and his benefits to his people. And those, that kindness might be expressed in lots of different ways. But this king, he's expressing his kindness to his subjects that rather than destroying them as they deserve, he's rescuing them. He's giving them life. He's giving them victory in his son. He is sending his son. He is, it's the abundance of his grace which he is making manifest. He wanted to be glorified by showing himself to be infinitely wise and kind and merciful and loving. And so that is what he has done for us. And if, and if he's shown that kindness to us, then we ought to respond to that kindness the way that Scripture talks to us about kindness. So Romans chapter 1 says that, um, Paul, Paul says in Romans that um, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So if we were dead and we were, if we were trapped in these trespasses and sins, then if God has shown us his kindness, if he's made us alive, we ought to repent of those sins. We ought to live in the life that we've been given. But also, we ought to be praising God. If he wants to make his, the measurable riches of his kindness manifest, that ought to be on our lips and in our lives, in every aspect of our life. We've been given new life. But we can't do that, can we, if we don't understand why he's been so kind. And we can't understand why he's been so kind unless we understand how precarious of a situation we were in. How the depth of our sin. And and as we begin to reflect on the passage, that's kind of where I'd want to start, is just without a proper recognition of or proper perspective on our sin, um, we get ourselves into trouble. For one, one thing, we we trifle with our sin. We just don't think that it's that big of a deal. Um, yes, we confess Christ as our Savior. Yes, we think that we're sinners. And yet, we don't war against that flesh. We don't do everything we can to put that to death. We, we make excuses. We justify it. Um, we say it's part of our personality, part of who we're being. And, you know, the church, you know, the conservative churches across our country, we, we haven't talked about this in a while, but you know, the whole debate over same-sex attraction and whether that's part of who we are or who certain people are, and whether that's a, a sin that's part of their personality or not, we've rightfully said, no, that's a sin 
um, that is not part of who you are. That's not your personality. That's not your identity. And yet, I think we have a tendency to do that with the sins that are that cling so tightly to ourselves. I am just a prideful person. I'm just an angry person. I'm just a person who is lustful at times. I'm I'm just a person who gets angry at my spouse when I need to. I, I uh, am consumed with my work. You know, the things that we do, it's we sit, we we view it as a part of our personality rather than a sin that we ought to put to death. And so we trifle with it. Um, We live as though we're enslaved to those sins when we've been set free. We live as though we're still dead when we've been made alive. But we also ought to be praising God with every, every bit of our being, knowing that we have been rescued from death to life. We've been rescued from his wrath. But we can't have that joy unless we understand the depth of the affliction. I think pondering... The fact that we were objects of wrath is um, important for us. And think about who Paul is, who's Paul is talking to. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And this is the same Paul that earlier in chapter 1 he said, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So even before the foundation of the world, God chose us to be in him, and yet we were still objects of wrath. And this is the Apostle Paul, who was a Jew, so he knew of the covenants that God had given. So God had given his covenant promises. Paul was marked with a covenant sign. And yet, he said, we were objects of wrath. So even though God had elected before the foundation of the world, there was still this period of time that walking in transgressions and sins made them objects of wrath. And so God's promises preceded the sins which made them objects of wrath. And so, do you hate your sin? Even though you may have been chosen before the foundation of the world, even though you may bear the, you've been baptized in Christ Jesus and partake of these covenant signs of God's promises, do you hate that sin for, for which Christ died? Or do you live with it as though it um, belongs there? And Notice the universal nature of this affliction. There's really two categories of people, Paul says. There are those who were objects of wrath and those who are objects of wrath. Paul's encouragement is, you were that. But the implication is that there are those who are still that. And I wonder if we really believe that. I mean, we, we, we hold to the universality of the total depravity of man. But do we really believe it? And here's where I'll ask. When we look at our kids, when we look at those innocent little babies or those kids that run around or those kids that live in our homes and start to reflect us a little bit, do we really believe that those kids are objects of God's wrath? Or do we say, well, you know, they're marked with baptism and so they're they're good to go, are they? It is by grace that they are saved through faith. Do we, do we uh, allow their sins? Do we excuse their sins even as we excuse our own? Or do we, do we have a, as parents, do we have a desire to point them to Christ and the only one that can save them from that wrath? And when we think about our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, do we tremble? under the weight of the fact that they are objects of God's wrath. 
until they put their faith in Christ Jesus and are saved in him. We don't know whether they are chosen from before the foundation of the world. We don't know. What we know is that there are two categories, those who were and those who are. And that ought to fuel our evangelism like nothing else. Knowing that our God, not just that we want to see our churches filled, not that we want to see God worship, but because we care for them. Think of, think of your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers that are apart from Christ. They are objects of God's wrath. Libel for his eternal punishment. But if there's any hope that we can get from this passage for them, is that, and you were dead. If God could work this in you, if he could give you eyes to see the beauty of Christ, if he could raise you from the dead and seat you with Christ in the heavenly realms, then he could do the same thing for your family and for your friends and for your kids. God is gracious. He is good. They might be there, but God can do, he can rescue them from these things. In fact, brothers and sisters, that is our only hope. Not because of anything that is in us, but because of God who is rich in mercy and abundant with his love and his grace. It's the strong and magnificent love of the almighty God, our heavenly father. You were dead, but God made you alive with Christ. Praise God for his abundant magnificent and glorious love for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we tremble before your holiness knowing that we were objects of wrath, but now we have become objects of your mercy. Would you, would you give us a sense of that truth in our heart? Would you help us to live um, believing that from our very core would you would you help us to root out the sin in our lives but father would you be gracious to those whom we know whom we love would you give us words to say to that you might use to call people to yourself that you might be merciful to them father forgive us for having such a weak view of your holiness such a weak view of the sin in our own lives help us to love you and to be purified in christ jesus and we pray these things in his name amen